from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out on a crisp, cool March, Wednesday morning, 8 o'clock Eastern Time here. If you're listening and it's 8 o'clock Eastern Time, it is live. We're going to be here live for the next two hours. Adi Weiner's here. Shane Jensen's here. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning. We're going to be here for the next two hours as we are. Some combination of us every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. We'd love to hear from you. The number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us if you'd rather type this morning than talk, which is understandable. Maddie Dots will take your email. Give us an email: businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. Another way to stay in touch with us is to follow us on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle at wmoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically, not only about the show, but as um, as the week goes along, various sports analytics matters. If you're a Twitter person, at WMoneyBall. We have guests, as we usually do, at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. But between now and then, open lines, open conversation. You can give us a ring. I'm curious. We, we missed last week. Last week was a, a, a rare week off for us around here. I'm curious what my boys have been paying attention to since then. What's cut your eye, guys? Adi, Shane? Well, um, I spent some time in spring training. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We were off uh, you know, with our live show, and I took that opportunity to get some sun. <laughs> you don't look like you got sun. I know. I, well, no. I came home and got smacked by a bad cold okay. and, and, and storm. So. so spring break in Florida, I'm guessing you weren't like hanging with the undergrads on the beach. You were actually doing baseball things. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, as much as those days were fond, they're long ago in the past. Yeah. I mean, the undergraduates in the beach, we, and, at the beach. Uh, Your kids? The beach. You I'm, could be with the kids. With the kids. Uh, no, I went to baseball, yes. So we went to, actually, was there for only three days. So we spent two days at baseball parks. I went to Nationals Park, um, which is a brand new park, ballpark of the Palm Beaches, shared by the Astros and the Nationals. It's a okay. great facility. Okay. There's a beautiful stadium in the center, and there's two facilities off to the side with 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 about a half a dozen or, or so practice fields um, in either direction. And so all the kinds sh- of, the, so they, they, they share, but they share the main. Stadium. They share the main stadium, but everything else is separate. They've but everything else is separate. It's a separate facility. Okay. So, and there's 200 or so professional baseball players there during spring training. There's about obviously you have your 40 man roster on the baseball team on the major major league roster, and then you have all the minors that are there, practicing, mm-hmm. being observed, mm-hmm. um, skills training, mm-hmm. strength training. Had you been down there before? Never, never been to a spring training game ever so or a facility what, what ever. Are your, what are your impressions? Well, I it mean, was exciting to watch the skills training because I feel like Eric, you know, I mean Eric can watch the combine on TV mm. and be entertained. So I feel like you know guys doing wind sprints and stuff like that. I, well, well was it, that, it was, was exciting. That? This is not my thing. I did right. get a, I did okay. get a, we did get a, a nice tour. Um, so Sam Andre Cohen was a, a former Penn student, one of my one of my students. He's now the director of research and uh, and development at uh, for the Nationals. 
and he set up a, a super tour for good me. guy, right? Super good, guy. super good guy. And um, they actually—he was not a Wharton student; he was a college. No, student. he was a college. He was an African American studies yeah. and uh, and history major, and um, he just showed up in my office and said, "I want to." Uh, Is that right? And, and when I wanna, he was an undergrad, when he was an undergraduate, I said, "I want to learn some." you know, baseball analytics. And I said, well, have you taken any statistics? He said, no. <laughs> I said, well, you need to take a stat class. And uh, wow. And basically, you know, he, he convinced me and I was amenable to it. I just basically gave him a private hour lecture every every Thursday morning from like 9 to 10 before my regular office hours. Adi, so do you do this happen? every semester for the Penn students? Uh, yeah. no, is kidding. there how an open someone... call for this? Well, you know, it's a, you know. How, I, how was he so persuasive? Well, first yeah. of all, I mean, how or how were you so generous? I mean, yeah. well, truthfully, if you look back in time, this was about ten years ago, and the baseball analytics stuff was not as uh, enormously, you know, developed as it is today. This was a, a time where their teams didn't have anyone. Most of the teams, except with a couple exceptions, didn't have any individuals. I was trying to learn a lot myself. We were doing the ESPN project, uh, mm -hmm. Shane. If you remember, we had gotten funding from ESPN. This is how I kind of got involved in this in the first place. And it was an opportunity to, for me to learn. And frankly, wonderful students are great to talk to. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. true. Smart, true. Uh, wonderful students are a lot of fun. And it's a part of our job, I think, that, that is uh, underrated. But when you How get did a you decide to, to take a bet on a guy who doesn't even take stats? He's an African-American literature studies guy. Sam is persuasive. In fact, and Sam likes to say, and, and uh, I did an interview with him. Hopefully we can put it together and, and broadcast it. He liked to say that he, he's not an analyst himself. Uh, he's, he's, what his talent is is finding good people. And he has hired some exceptional people, hmm. mathematicians well, and computer scientists. Well, that, that raises a different set of questions. Yeah. That's a that's a that's an extraordinary talent needed far beyond the world of sports. I'd be curious to hear how he does that. Absolutely. In fact, he even he admitted to me. He said, "You know, one thing I realized is that baseball is a game of people. That's how you manage a team is to manage people." And mm -hmm. this is the, this is what he's had to learn. And he says, I think I'm pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, he's, he's sophisticated in his knowledge of analytics at the high level. He understands the message and what it means and what its limitations are. I don't think, he, I mean, he's not the guy who writes, who builds the models. But he does, mm -hmm. he is the guy who interfaces with, with the people writing them and the people who are using them. Now, not, not every team functions the way the Nationals do. And, and maybe Sam can tell you directly about how they do it. But there's, some teams have much smaller analytics. Others have much bigger ones. And the... The the way the analytics information filters out to the GM is different across the different teams. Yeah, and so one thing that I can say is like the, the Yankees are actually quite famous among the analytical community for those messages going right to the GM. Hmm. So the the interns, the the young guys, as part of the hmm. fourteen, fifteen, you know, st statistician, computer science team, their messages will get to the high levels of management. Hmm. Will it get to the coaches on the field to the players? That's a different story. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all different. And but you can see how these things play out. I mean, I watched two games. I watched the the Astros versus the Nationals, both home technically, right? Mm -hmm. And then I watched the Yankees versus the Mets. The, ne uh, the next fun. day, I went to to yeah, Port yeah. St. Lucie. That was fun. It was at the Mets action facility. Okay. The Yankees are two and a half hours away in Tampa. Okay. They send their B team, their B C <laughs> D team. JV team. Um, yeah. they, the only starter they sent was Brett Gardner, who left after like the third inning. And exciting, uh, exciting. And the Mets had their had their full starting lineup. Was Tebow starting? Uh, Tebow was not starting for that's the Mets. A, that's disappointing. Um, but he's in the facility, and and <laughs> yeah. his uh, and his Just shirt inspiring was, people. And and he in was the background. <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> you could feel his. You could, feel, you could sense him. Even but if he one of the things that you could tell by watching, even in this spring training game, is the is the intensity with, with which the Yankees and the Astros shift. Oh yeah, mm. and and it's amazing how 
every left-hander, it seems, there's a ma- major movement on to the right side of the infield by mm-hmm. the infielders. It's well, and, and this is kind of, I always like, when I take sort of casual fans to baseball games, which I, I, I try and do a lot because I want to get more people into baseball, um, That that's the first thing that they notice now is that, you know, when when every hitter's out there, there's the, the players are moving around the field, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I've had casual fans ask me like, "Has it always been like this? That there's these dramatic Incredible kind of changes right. in player like you know position from hitter to hitter?" No, I mean that is something where analytics has basically changed what the game looks like over the last twenty years. Isn't it extraordinary that it didn't happen for? A hundred plus years. Well, it had. Yeah. I mean, it happened for individuals. So Ted Williams was shifted extensively but almost every time all, he batted. All, all the more reason why it's curious it didn't happen more. Yeah, like why? Why pick out? Why do dramatic shifts for one out of and none of the hundred players and none of that's right. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's. Well, I don't think they realize. Culture. I don't know. It that, is culture. That's exactly yeah. right. Why? Why? Why did basketball uh, go like twenty, twenty-five years without taking advantage of the three-point yeah. line? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you ask, yeah. I mean, this is let's, let's actually can we try to unpack this a little bit? If you ask, if I try to answer the question about basketball, I would say that I don't think people realize that they could hit three pointers at the rate that they can hit them. I mean, that would be my, my guess. That's a hyper rational explanation, I would say, and it's probably one factor. But I think the stronger factor is the norm that it has decades precedence. And the culture that's built around that norm and other norms like it, it's really hard to change. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's got a chicken and egg thing. One of the reasons people probably didn't realize that you could kind of consistently shoot those threes is that people weren't didn't trained try. in that way. People they were discouraged, probably actively yeah. discouraged from kind of having that kind of game. Yeah, and it was considered, you know, it, it wasn't considered real basketball. You're yeah. supposed to pound it down low and post up and one-on-one matchups and all that kind of stuff. And there's a norm against this little, you know, dainty, easy, fired up from way outside kind of play. Yeah. And I think in baseball, it's maybe somewhat similar. It was it was it's a conservative game, and even when they were doing it for Ted Williams, it was it was considered kind of unfair that they would move the shortstop out into yeah. out into right mid right field. And when you're at the game and you're watching this, I mean, the Astros are so aggressive at it. The Yankees are doing it too. I would almost say at the same rate. You know, a left-handed hitter he smashes a ball over the second baseman. And it's one hop by the shortstop who's in the outfield, <laughs> yeah. and he makes a super strong throw to first, and he's out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You watch this, and you're like, oh, great. I mean, if you think about it, Teixeira, the Yankees' great le- you know, left, well, he was a switch hitter. He just was, he lost 30 points on his batting average. Boom. The shift just killed him. Yeah. And, and now, one of the things is that, this is, this is a point that Sam raised. He said, they got to learn to bunt. If you're lefty and you're shifted on, you just need to lay one down on third and, base. And again, culture is going to work against that. And yeah, they they won't do it. Work against that. They so, cl- by, by the way, Adi, doesn't yeah. this, I mean, the field, the, the standard conventional setup in baseball, defensive setup, favors left-handed hitters. I mean, it's, it's kind of built for a right-handed hitter. So historically, have we seen that left-handed hitters have better on, at performance at the plate because the field is you know privileged they're privileged relative to right-handed hitters well yes and no they're privileged in the sense that they're one well, two steps closer to first too many right-handed pitchers right-handed pitchers okay, are they're dominate. Off, offset by the pitchers yeah, yeah okay. so there's well left-handed pit hitters feast off of righties so they get this big benefit by having to face the righties it's interesting because the batters are about 50 50 righty lefty but the pitchers are 80 90 percent okay. righty because it's 
I mean, right. right. But 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 that alone. That's great that's, advantage that's why, for lefty. That's why there are so many left-handed hitters. That's it's right. not that people are born left-handed hitters. It's no, that it's advantageous. Advantageous. Yeah. And you're about two steps closer to first base. There's tr- three advantages. And then, you of course, yeah. and, then, and then when you hit a ball into the right-hand corner, the chance of getting a, a triple is much better right, because right, it's a much right. longer throw. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, other impressions for one is one, one question I have for you. I mean, you go to you, you go to practices or summer camp and you get to so much closer to these players. I mean, you stand uh, on the sidelines or whatever. It's just a different thing. First of all, they're huge. You, really? <laughs> I don't think of a baseball player. As well, huge. you know what? Um, so the typical guy, so you, you know, you meet a, a, a shortstop or a, a second baseman. They're not huge. They're just they're average size in every respect, although they'll break your arm. Because they're so strong. <laughs> well, we've got we've got an executive MBA here at Wharton that you're actually doing some work with, who is uh, like a an interior or what? I'm missing, mixing my sports. He's a middle infielder. He's a middle infielder, and he's a normal sized guy. Very normal. He's in shape. Yeah. Um, but 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 have you shaken? Have you sh- shook Brendan's head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. In shape. he's, he's in strong. Shape. No question. I mean, yeah. it's, it, they they swing that. They've been swinging that bat for 20 years and throwing, and they have amazing, you know, arm strength. There was yeah. just an article in the, the Wall Street Journal, I think, talking about the the incredible strength of a baseball player in their in their hands and arms. Okay. So the, even the little guys are are, are incredibly strong. Um, one of the things that so I went to the Nationals Park and I was treated, you know, as a nice VIP for by Sam Andre Cohen and, and his group. But I actually went to the Astros, or actually the next day to the to the Mets Park in St. Lucie, and I. I got media credentials. Excellent. Which was the first time we, we were able to do this as a, as a through a Sirius XM. And the first place I walk into, having no idea where I'm going, was the clubhouse. Oh no, oh. <laughs> Audi. <laughs> just, and there just I am. In the don't, don't, they, don't these credentials come with guidelines, or they just assume well, that you okay. know? Media well, people know these things. Well, here's the problem. Well. Media people, <laughs> there, there is. I mean, that's I, why I we're renegades. We <laughs> do not know these things. We do not know these things. I think we will try to learn them. I went ah. tried to quickly go online Stifles and find it, get the media kit because such a thing exists, but I, I couldn't get access because you need to sign up for it and then you get it. So I had no idea where <laughs> what I was doing, where I was supposed to go, yeah. how, how and where I should be. So, the so you're walking down place. the craft service table, and they come up to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, the first thing on my right is is the food, and one thing you yeah. have to recognize is, that, is that yeah. there's an enormous amount of eating that goes on at a major well, league I mean, that, and it's just incredible piles like of giant, for. yeah, you gi- giant piles of meat and fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's obviously what what they need. And you go into the clubhouse; it's a minor league clubhouse, so there's it's enormous because it's it's deals with. You know all the players on the roster. So yeah. I don't. I've never been to a major league pro- clubhouse, and there's the Mets. They're all there, getting changed, getting ready for the game, and uh, many of whom I recognize. But right. Good I Lord. wasn't supposed getting to be changed. there. Oh, no, you weren't. <laughs> I can see. I can. <laughs> well, I would have probably known immediately. I wasn't supposed to well, be there. Well, I knew but... it. But anyway, so I was asked. I was asked. I was told pretty quickly that this is the, the hour for media yeah. um, had ended. There, the media is right, a, a privilege right. to be in the clubhouse. It's just there are specific times for it. Yeah. So I just walked out this other door, right on the field. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, you can't. Matt, you can't send him to Florida no. alone. I mean, come on. We mentioned this is right during the fourth inning, so you literally just <laughs> this, walk right this is out about, there. This is about an hour before they the game. Stop the game. <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> It was a nice experiment, Shane. We yeah. tried. We yeah. tried. But eventually I figured out where to be, which is in the press box. Um, which imagine. Was, imagine that. Um, well, though, this is... <laughs> if only you'd had the media guide and been able to figure that out. But there's no directions on how to get there, so you have to, you have to kind Turns of figure that out. Turns out you go out. through the clubhouse. Yeah. That's the easiest that's, way. That's you not just, the way. You cut through um, the showers, right past the food, and you're uh, in the media. Actually, the, there are signs everywhere saying media not allowed past this point. And yeah, media well, not allowed past that point. Uh, you just powered uh, through those. Yeah, Shane, that's why it would have been fun if you had been there. <laughs> 
because the powering would have been great. <laughs> but I disagree. A whole new series. Places we can send Adi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. This, 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 that's year right. Was, this year was spring training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, because, I'm, because I'm so unnoticeable wherever yeah, I go. I think we can work up to the Olympics. I think that's what we really should aim for. Yeah. But this does give I, you. Preferably in Russia. How about. Oh, no, that would be amazing. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So one thing you do recognize is that the players are enormous. Uh, some of them are. I mean, Jay Bruce is a very big guy. Steven Strasburg, who I saw at the Nationals, is about six six, just yeah, a very yeah. tall yeah, yeah. human being. Um, so that's. I mean, it's. Well, not- I mean, I, I. I mean, I. I have not had that kind of perspective uh, that you had, but I was uh, at an. You know, one of the kind of pre games for a season a few years ago, and I, it was the Phillies against the Red Sox, which is one of the reasons I was there. Because um, you're a Phillies fan, right? Well, <laughs> well, well when not. they're not playing the Red Sox. <laughs> right. um, and uh, I had really good seats, so I was like right, you know, first base line, right close to the field. And I saw Big Poppy up at the plate. I'm like, oh, wow, he looks pretty big. As you might guess, because it's in his name. Um, <laughs> and then he get, he walks, and he gets the first base. He's standing next to Ryan Howard. And he, I'm like, well, okay, maybe Big Poppy's not, not that so big. big. <laughs> Ryan Howard's somehow even bigger, even bigger than this guy. Wow. Wow, so this is Wharton Moneyball. Hard to scale. We're talking sports analytics. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, that is. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This morning, Adi Shane Cade. We're talking with Adi about his trip down to Florida for spring training over spring break. He did it under the auspices of SiriusXM. Got himself into a little you know, a fix here and there, but he was recording some Interview some tape. I assume we're going to mix that into the show. We'll shows see how going, that works out. Yeah, yeah. Good little experiment. I want to tell you about my own spring break trip, which is related. You guys were mocking it earlier, but it was great fun. I went to the combine. I swung by the combine on the way to Texas for some family stuff. I was I'm, I'm in, 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 in working with the team. They mm-hmm. wanted to drop me into the middle of their activities there so I could see what it was all about. And this thing that we've been talking about for years, I finally got to see at least parts of it. I'm up close and personal. It was great. Talk to us. It was fun. I'm telling you, I had so much fun. So much. So it surprises me how much fun. One, it was from a work perspective. It was really helpful to see these guys doing this thing. And I've and I've been kind of skeptical about the value you get from being there in person because you can get all the data. I believe in the data, as we've talked Mm -hmm. about. The the data have some predictive value, even if not as much as people think. But do you need to be there to get it? It turns out the combine is this. It's this convention. It's NFL convention, essentially. Like everybody in the NFL is there. Like literally, all the coaches, all the scouts, all the executives. Everybody's there. It's. I mean, so it's it's the gathering for the year. So there's this social, professional networking side that's a lot of fun. But then the the player evaluations. I mean, it was novel for me to be in the middle of this stuff. So that's one factor. But. I came away with a greater appreciation for how challenging these things are. So they do interviews, for example, and. You know, teams are really interested in how do you assess a kid's character and work ethic, and is he going to learn? Is he going to improve? And, and they've come to realize this is one of the most important things in predicting a, 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 a young athlete's future success, and even more difficult. It's it's like the most important thing in many ways, and yet it's the most difficult thing to assess. And so they're always looking for new ways to do this. At the combine, they get fifteen minutes in a hotel room to interview something like each team gets like sixty. Six zero interviews. So over the you know in in the evenings for three or four hours at a shot for three or four nights in a row, these kids are cycled through, and you walk into this room and there's 
17 coaches and scouts. I'm not even exaggerating. 14, 15, 16, 17 coaches and scouts in this room. And this kid walks in and he's kind of, and it's just, a, it's an amazing process to watch. Wow. Um, and in the size again, some of these guys, you know, these are like 21 year old guys, but I was there for yeah, red shirt. So, well, some cases 22. they might be 22. Some cases they may be coming out early. They might be 20 years old, but I was there. I was in the room for one of the. I was in, I was in the room when they were interviewing defensive linemen and edge rushers, and so these were some of the bigger Gigantic guys. Gigantic dudes. And there was one guy, this defensive lineman out of the University of Washington, who's such a good kid, an amazing player, but he he weighs like three forty four, and it's a solid three forty four. He's just completely. He's a square. He's just a cube. Yeah. And it's and and a great guy. And, and it's so much fun. It, this is purely fun, right? Because now I'm like invested in where this guy is going to be drafted. Yeah. And it makes me sympathetic to this guy and the execs and the coaches because it is a human enterprise. I mean, it, you, as, as an analyst from a distance, you can fall prey to distilling it to a number. Right. And decision makers sometimes make mistakes by not considering the numbers enough. But it's, it's really hard to distill all that to a single number. And, it's, and it's, even, it's even harder to avoid wanting to read into things and figure out and diagnose yeah. these kids' characters. What's your um, impression? I mean, like, because obviously we're talking about sort of like these kind of character-type traits or these kind of intangible or at least hard-to-quantify type things. How scientific... Just give us a general... What are they how scientific? Yeah. How scientific are the teams about trying to assess this? Are they... Are they, they is it really they, just... Mostly not very. Yeah. And, the, and, of course, there's heterogeneity. Yeah. And... You'd like to give all. You'd like to give a bunch of tests, and you just don't have that much time with them. Yeah. So what? What scouts generally try to do is get information from as many different sources as possible and kind of triangulate on it. You know, there's a, there are a lot of vendors out there selling tools and tests that are supposed to be super diagnostic, and it's and some of them are okay, as you guys know. Some of them aren't so much you mean okay. like personality tests and yeah, you know, and physical tests and, physical and reaction tests. time tests and they still use tests. this uh, this IQ test or this whatever thing they use. Wonder the Wonderlic, Wonderlic. Yeah, people. I mean, I don't know how much weight teams give it, yeah. but they're still they're still conducting the test. And my my main takeaway about all that, not just in the world of sports, but outside the world of sports, is that there there are very few. There are no silver bullets. There's no one test, and you want to get as many different inputs and signals as possible but the most important thing is what your decision process is what's how how systematic is the organization are the scouts asking the same questions so that's apples to apples across scouts and across players does the information get fed into the decision making apparatus whatever it is whether it's one guy or three guys does it get fed in there in a systematic way that kind of structural stuff that boring structural stuff actually is the most important thing and the teams that differentiate themselves um, do that stuff well um we have a caller here locally with Jack from Philadelphia. Jack, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Yeah, great, uh, great conversation. Yeah, I just had a question around. You know, I, I, I remember speaking with Mike Mayock. I'm born and around the Philadelphia area. I was a football player in high school and college. And Mike, being one of the uh, draft analysts, you know, before the NFL Network even started, he was one of the premier guys. He made an interesting comment about a particular athlete i forget his name but he was defensive end from like university of alabama and he was just off the charts with his statistics and his combine performance and i said you know why isn't he higher in the draft mike you know what this guy looks looks great and he said you know jack he, he just doesn't make enough plays on the field and you know when you think about the play the eagles made against tom brady in the fourth quarter you know how do you how do you really capture that that data it's such an intangible it's so subjective it's a gut feeling 
for I think some of the best scouts have. What programs, uh, you know, what software analytics are they using to capture some of, you know, all this data in football? But how do you measure those real intangibles from an analytical standpoint? Uh, Jack, great question. Uh, great question and, and something that teams grapple with, struggle with. Um, the, the most direct answer is that these days there are chart data. So you can go in on a play-by-play basis and learn something. At least somebody's recorded somewhere what a guy did on a play. Now there's not a there's usually not a column for something special in the yeah like like, 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 a, like a like a game changing play or right. something like that. It's usually like did you do your job? Did yeah, you not do your job? Usually, or did you go above and beyond? And yeah. they want them to be as objective and cut and dry yep. as possible. So you might grade a player on thirty dimensions on a given play, but they're intended to be extremely objective and cut and dry. So mostly that's not a way to get at what you're talking about. Which is somehow like, you know, a sort of exceptional performance in like a high leverage kind of situation. That's right. So what you're dependent on is scouts, how they report that. I mean, I don't, I don't you know, gosh knows, I haven't, I haven't, I've only worked with a few teams and there are more out there that have different systems, I'm sure. But I would be very surprised if people, if teams had a systematic way of capturing that. We push our teams to just capture the global evaluation. So above and beyond the numbers, above and beyond the discussion, like do you have this do you have the feeling that this is this guy's got it? You know, you know, scouts and coaches talk about he's got it. Well, we push our teams to record that. You know, let's just record that and see whether it's predictive over time. So some teams, for example, will give you know, they'll give they have different ways of doing this and capturing that. But mostly, Jack, mostly they don't do it. Mostly they talk about it. Whenever they're talking about the players, they'll sit around as scouts, they'll sit, they'll include the coaches, and they'll talk about a player, and a scout will mention a play. He said, oh, I guess Wisconsin, they did this thing, and it was amazing. He'll talk about the play, but it's not recorded in mm-hmm. some systematic okay. way so that over time you can evaluate how diagnostic it is. Well, here's a question. I mean, you have three data points here. and You have your statistics on the field, which for a defensive player might not be the easiest thing to, to collect or validate. You have the combine data. And now you have these anecdotes. How do they knit the three together? And what, we're, what the caller is essentially suggesting is that even in the presence of two very strong signals on, the, on one side, if the anecdotes aren't there, he's not going forward. That's too extreme, of course, but those anecdotes weigh. <clears throat> For sure they, they weigh, weigh a lot. But they, weigh, they, but weigh. they probably weigh, I think what you're saying is they weigh in sort of this informal, or at least this, right. this way that's not codified in a formal Co- way. Correct, and, and, and teams would be well advised Keep on weigh it how you want to weigh it. Yeah. Fine, fine, fine. But let's be empirical about it. Code it when it's there, yeah. and then let's find out over time whether it's predictive and how predictive it is. Right now, odd. Usually, even the teams with models, they're running the model on one side, and then in parallel, the scouts are having their process and coming up with a number. And usually, if they have a model, they're blending those things afterward. But the scouts process will include all the on-field stuff. It'll include the combine data. It'll include watching tape. It'll include having these conversations. It'll include the instinct of this guy. It'll have all that stuff. And it's sometimes it's a, it's separated, but it's not really parsed out so you can evaluate it empirically. Right. I think uh, the project that Brendan Harris is working on is essentially a scouting evaluation system. I don't think he knows it yet. That would be, that would be what I would recommend he do. He's got all this data that the scouts have put together on about – 700 or so different hitters at all of all different levels and they've tagged them all and they've tagged the same players yeah. and it's an opportunity to take a look and see what kind of how, consistent how much information is coming out of this and it's very very yeah. formalized it's doing exactly what you suggest That's needs fantastic. to be done so they don't they don't allow the scouts to just write whatever they want they give them a menu of about 
a hundred different options. But, yeah. but and they pull them down. It's also for ease of of uh, entry. But it's the data's there, and I don't think they know what to do with it yet. And that potentially will be something we'll work on. That that's a, that sounds like a great project. And I want to emphasize that the 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 mistake some analysts make, many analysts make, it's 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 easy to make, is to want to distill everything down to a number. In the end, if you've worked a lot with these models, you know that when you do that, even good ones, you're only explaining a minority of the variance, or at least you know not 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 a super majority of the variance. So you, you're missing some stuff. And if you talk to guys who've been in the field for a long time, they think they have some of that stuff. So the challenge for us really is how do you pull, how do you extract that expertise that's legitimate, and how do you separate it from intuition that may not be that valuable. So you've got to, they got true expertise, but it travels along the same channel as the junk. And so you've got to yeah. figure out a way to, to separate those two things. So, by the way, <clears throat> I, I came away from the combine appreciating a couple of things. A real advantage of the combine is that you see athletes do the same thing back to back. Mm. So they'll take, you know, the most obvious one is pat, pit, you know, pitchers and catchers, pat, <laughs> passers, quarterbacks and receivers. They'll have a pattern that they that they want them to run, and they'll have, you know, they'll have twelve quarterbacks back to back step up and throw five, six patches. Cuts passes. down on the variance, so you can it's, really see the signal. You see, yeah, you yeah, see. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you get to all, all the tape in the world. You'll never see the two quarterbacks you're considering taking back to back. Now they're throwing to different receivers, so there's there's not always completely apples to apples. But you know, you sit there in the stands, and I sat one morning with the scouts and watched them. We're, this was again, it was D linemen and outside and outside edge rushers. And they put them through these agility drills, and you can't help but have an opinion on which yeah. guys are better. I mean, I'm, I know nothing, but I'm going, oh, that guy, he sucks. <laughs> but that guy's having a terrible day. I try to just listen to him as much as possible, but it's impossible not to have, not to have reaction. Finally, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, they, you know the, 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 the test most people, that probably high, most prominent test at the combine is the 40. So all the athletes, unless you choose not to run, because you might run on your pro day, are going to run the 40. So one day... You know, the receivers will run, and the next day the linemen will run or whatever. And everybody, the teams line up in the stands at the finish line. And all the scouts hand time the 40s. And, you know, that's because a couple of things. They're going to get the data. Like, you know, there's a. They just want it right away. But they they want the data right away. But also, you're going to sit there for two hours and watch 40s. You want to entertain yourself, essentially. And so, what these guys are doing, they're basically, they'll have six guys on one team. In one row, and then six guys on another team right in front, six guys on another team right behind, and everyone's hand timing these things. But then you're like, then it becomes like a little contest. You you start picking who's going to run above or you play over under. But then you're like, who who, whose times are closest? It's and it's just it's just guys being stupid guys, and it's so much fun. I mean, I would never have thought of it, enjoyed it that much, and it was actually well in the stands when I was at nationals. I was in the scouting section, and all the scouts are there with their uh, with their stopwatches. And I asked them, I was sitting next to a scout, "What are you doing?" And one guy had a radar gun, and um, he said, "Well, I'm just you know getting times to first base, getting their their times to second base, uh, just little things, which which you probably can't pick up at a minor league game." I mean, although they, they are, there is TrackMan and StatCast and all this stuff is collecting all this. The teams have it, so you can get it. But this is partly how they just you know enjoy two hours at the game. Or in baseball, three hours. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, there is some. There's part of it's just enjoyment. It, there's no. There's no getting around that. And I think that's okay. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with Adi and Shane. Eric is out and about doing Eric Bradlow things. He will be back. In the meantime, we're going to be for the next three quarters of the show, hour and a half left. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Matt Dots, our producer, will pick that up. If you're listening live, you can do that. Well, sometimes we actually do respond to email live. If you're listening during one of the times we're replayed, it's a great way to reach out on a Thursday evening if that's when you happen to listen to us or Saturday morning. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at WMoneyBall. Following our guests and tweeting about all matters, sports analytics over the course of the week, at WMoneyBall if you're on Twitter. Rolling into the second quarter, we have a guest this quarter. Delighted to have Rob Arthur join us. Rob is a journalist, consultant covering baseball, criminal justice, politics, and other topics. He writes for fantastic publications like 538, New York Times, Slate. Rob caught our attention this time around because of some recent writing on juiced baseballs. Rob Arthur, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having you, Rob. Where are you calling in from today? Chicago. Well, we, we heard we heard that you did your graduate work in Chicago. I wasn't sure you were still living there. So you did a Ph.D. at the University of Chicago in evolutionary genetics. And That's right, yeah. That was after studying um, general biology at UVA. But... You went from Virginia to Chicago, and after getting your PhD, you, you decided to stick around, huh? Yeah, I love Chicago. Never want to leave. So, <laughs> what is it you love so much? I, I did my graduate work at University of Chicago too. Pr- pr- proud of that place, and, and but what is it that kept you there in the city? Oh well, so I grew up in a fairly small town in Virginia, and um, Chicago was my first experience really living in a big city. So I think that was part of it. Uh, but, um, you know, after spending a bit of time here, it's, it's a great city. It's affordable. It's big. There's a lot to it. There's all, there's a saying about Chicago that it's a city of neighborhoods and that's true. You can experience a different city, um, every year, depending on where you live. So all that stuff just kind of kept me around. That's great. Um, so tell us about keeping, you, you moved from a PhD in evolutionary genetics to, to journalism and consulting. How, How did you make that? How did you make that hop? How did you decide to do that with your with all that you with all that you studied? Yeah, so um, when I was finishing up my PhD, I started blogging about baseball and some other stuff from a data centric perspective on the side, and that kind of came out of the fact that I was working in this very heavily statistical, quantitative field, um, bioinformatics and evolutionary genetics. And so I just kind of wanted something to relax with, so I started blogging about baseball. And um, right when I was finishing up, um, I got this job offer from from Nate Silver at 538 to come write for him. Oh, 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 how did how did Nate find out about you? Was this this just from your blogs? Well, I found I got a smaller job between starting my my blog. I started writing at Baseball Prospectus for a year, Um, so I sort of moved my baseball blogging from my blog to Baseball Prospectus. Nate Silver was it? Yeah, yeah. Was at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, no, he had left already. Well, but, yeah, but he grew um, up there. They were so. they were starting up uh, a baseball coverage at five thirty eight, and he still read it, of course, and so he noticed my stuff. All right, so, so yeah. Nate Nate catches you you catch Nate's eye. He offers you a job writing for five thirty eight. Yeah, and I'd never really thought about doing journalism or anything like that, but 
Um, I was pretty burned out at the time. I was pretty exhausted of doing scientific research. And um, so I just decided to go with it um, and, and make a shift. And um, I've enjoyed it a lot ever since. Um, I've broadened out what I cover and I've done more more reporting stuff. And it's been great. So I've really enjoyed it. What connections do you draw between the Ph.D. work you did in evolutionary genetics and the writing that you're doing now? You know, it's surprisingly similar. That was what I learned. Um, in a lot of ways, the idea with a, with a scientific research is that you go out, you find a question, you do a lot of in-depth research on it, maybe a, an experiment. You talk to similar people that are also studying it, and then you write up a report on that, which then gets published in an academic journal. Um, it's in three years. basically the same <laughs> process, except it's, except it's shrunk down from like a three- to five-year process to a one-week process. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's fundamentally the same deal. I start off with a question or some, some type of interesting topic could be suggested by me or my editor. I go out and do some research with it. Sometimes I can't find anything interesting about it to say, but most of the time there's something out there. Mm-hmm. Then I go talk to some people, see what they've found, and... I write up a, a brief, you know, thousand word thing instead of a ten thousand word article, and um, get it edited, and it pops up. So it's it's very similar, at least in the broad scope of it. So we're really interested in hearing about the baseballs. How did you find yeah. out? What was your first entree into this uh, this uh, this quandary, which is as 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 most people are aware of right now, home runs are through the roof, and that it was discovered. I don't know by whom um, that in basically All Star Break 2015, things were accelerating. What was your yeah, your entry was, into that? Yeah, that was the first thing that we noticed. That was uh, Ben Lindbergh and I. Um, in the middle of the 2015 season, we saw that home runs started spiking. And it was very unusual. We started looking at it mostly after that season. And it was very unusual for home runs to go up that much in the middle of the season. Um, in fact, I think it was the largest um, first half to second half difference in home runs that had ever happened um, with the data that we had. So we were we were intrigued even at that point, and home runs were still at that point only up something like ten percent, fifteen percent. But just put it in perspective, um, that's an enormous uh, increase in, in the middle of a season. It's amazing. Yeah. But now home runs are up something like forty-five percent. So there was just the very beginning at that point, and so um, we started looking into different explanations for it. There's a lot of possible, you know, culprits. One thing we looked at was the weather. We looked at whether the players were different. We looked at whether park dimensions were different. We looked at a whole bunch of different things, and, and basically nothing was explaining it. So at that point, we started thinking, maybe it's the baseball. Um, so we started developing a bunch of other research angles to look at the baseball and kept coming back to this idea that it had to be the baseball. Um, one of the things that Ben and I did and then Ben later did with another collaborator is they fired baseballs out of an air cannon at a steel plate to measure the bounciness of the baseballs. And the bounciness is really crucial because if a ball is bouncier than when a hitter hits it, it's going to come off the bat at a higher speed and travel further. And one of the things that Ben and I discovered, and and he later confirmed, is that the bounciness of the baseball changed right at that same time at the 2015 All-Star break and has been higher ever since then. Um, In follow-up research, I also found that the air resistance of the baseball changed. And in this most recent uh, research article that I did with with a friend of mine named Tim Dix, um, we found that actually the structure, the inside of the baseball and the core has changed. And those changes themselves wouldn't necessarily be um, enough individually to really increase home runs that much. When you put it all together, there's a weight change, there's the bounciness change, there's the air resistance change. 
you put it all together, and it explains more than half of the increase in home runs that we've seen over the last three years. Rob, Rob, can you back up one step? I missed this step. How do you have baseballs from all these different points in time? How does that happen? Or is someone continuously testing them so you can just go back and look at the test results? So we know that MLB is continuously testing them, but they don't release those results. What we do to get baseballs is we can order them off of eBay. We, we can have them authenticated by MLB, so they'll say this ball was hit um, at this at bat in this state in this stadium. Um, How do they do that? Is there, is there something on the baseball that it tells you when it was used? Yes. There's like, I believe it's a, a sort of barcode. Hmm. So they can scan that and then say, this is an authentic MLB baseball. It matches up with one from our database. Mm-hmm. So, so you're able to sort of sample from whatever time you want. Um, you, you can also you buy can do that because the there's so many, there's so many baseballs available on eBay. Is that right? You can just, there, you can just go, we want, we want Seattle Mariners 1999 and you can find one. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. There's a lot of baseballs that aren't really especially famous and aren't especially valuable. There's a bunch of foul balls. There's a bunch of home runs that are hit by not very notable players on, you know, not very notable games. So basically you can find one at any given point in time. Wow. So I, mean, I mean, this does sort of suggest, I mean, when you first started talking about grabbing these balls off eBay's, it um, you know, the thought that sprung into my mind was that there's a real selection bias there. Because I'm like, who puts a baseball up on eBay if it wasn't a home run baseball itself? So you could be sampling. It's not a random sample of all baseballs used in games, right? It's some. It's it's presumably baseballs were something relatively exceptional. Probably happened. foul balls. It's, guess, except, so. I guess, foul yeah. balls, you know, are not that exceptional. But it raises the question of what, how much variance there there is within ball properties. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think right. Rob knows the answer to that. That's I'm a big, sure, that's a big sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that we found is that at least within a given time frame, the variance is very, very small between baseballs. Okay. Now, in theory, the variance can be quite large uh, according to the MLB specifications, but we found that it was a lot lower than what they said it could be. So oh. when we actually looked between periods of time, between 2015 and 2016, for example, there was actually quite a lot more variance between the years and there was within within a group of balls from the same year. Rob, are the properties that stable or do they not change if they're sitting on a shelf somewhere for a couple of years? Um, no, I mean, some of them do and some of them don't. But one of the things that they do for the testing is they acclimate all the baseballs to the same conditions. So they essentially put it in a humidor um, for a period of time to get them all sort of at the same point. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are things about the baseballs that can change um, after... Uh, usage, but um, you can usually tell if they do start to change. So, for example, if a ball has been hit especially hard, it'll start to kind of fall apart, like if it gets hit on a home run. Mm-hmm. But you can tell because you, you'll see a, a noticeable deformity in the baseball. Hmm. So I believe that happened in one of the tests that um, Ben and Mitchell Lickman did, and they just sort of discarded that baseball. Got it. But otherwise, they're relatively stable. Okay, so let's go back to the, that's how you got the equipment to, to evaluate, but let's go back to the test that you run, and you're the one who who did the x-rays for the first time, right? You're the one. So remind us the different elements that added up. You said there's a little bit of a contribution from three or four different there's elements. Coefficient restitution. That's one of them. Yep. There's the density. That's a fancy the, name for what? Bounciness. 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 Yeah. All right. Then there's, I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to re- reiterate them because I've read these articles. There's the, the uh, air friction of the ball, the height of the seams. Okay. And then there's... Um, this this new thing, which is the interior that you can only measure by cutting it apart or X-raying it, and I don't know anything about that. So, so Rob, tell, that's that's that was something that you discovered. Right? So, walk us through why the interior, in what way the interior affects the flight of the ball, and what's different now. 
Yeah, so it's it's actually pretty simple. We saw that the interior was different, but there's a much bigger and more important thing that you can measure just easily, which is the weight. The weight is very slightly different on the new balls compared to the older balls. Wow. It's only about half a gram, which is the weight of a paperclip. So you would never be able to detect it if you picked up two baseballs. On a, but on a base of what? A of How many grams does a baseball weigh? Um, oh, I'm not, I can't do the conversion in my head. It's um, it's a uh, Sorry, no. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm not. not be okay. What's it in ounces? What's it in ounces? <laughs> or somebody um, Five point two five ounces, if I'm if I'm remembering right. Okay. 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 So it's a it's a one gram difference on a five point two five half a gram difference on a five point two five ounce ball, and yet that's going to translate into differences in performance. Very. That one is very small. That's six inches of total flight. So a slightly lighter ball is going to lead to a slightly longer flying uh, okay. trajectory. Okay. Um. But then the larger differences are the bounciness and the air resistance. So okay. the, the bounciness adds about three feet to the flight of a ball, and the air resistance adds five feet. So Can you put that in into total, context in, two, in terms of extra home runs? Because you talked about 10% increase and 45% increase. So what does, say, yeah. five feet do to the percentage of home runs? So a rough rule of thumb is that I believe seven feet equates to something like 20% increase. So we're looking at something like a 25% increase in home runs because of characteristic changes to the ball that we know Jeez. about. Um, so it explains roughly half the increase, the total mm-hmm. increase in home Which runs. Which is seven feet. Know. Okay. So we're talking yeah. to Rob Arthur. Rob is a journalist and consultant covering baseball and other topics for 538, the New York Times, and other high-end outlets. Rob Got his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in evolutionary genetics before making this jump to journalism. Rob has a recent piece on trying to understand the jump in home runs and in particular, you know, the differences in the ball that's that's contributed to this. So what what's the implication of this? You find these changes. What's the what do the conspiracy theorists say? What's your interpretation of these changes? So um, if you are a conspiracy theorist, there is abundant evidence to support that. Um, the The way that the changes happened um, was kind of incremental over time, but it's harder to believe that um, Rawlings would unintentionally make a change to the construction of the inside of the baseball. That's something that they should be monitoring fairly closely. And what we found is that that interior, in particular one layer of rubber, has changed not only in terms of the weight of the baseball. That explains the whole half-gram difference. But it's also changed in terms of what it's made of. It's a bit bit of a different formula of rubber than it was before. So it's sort of hard to believe that Rawlings would have unintentionally altered the formula that the rubber is made of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also this patent that was published right before the baseball started changing um, in the beginning of the year in 2015. And that patent describes a way of making a a different kind of baseball or softball, but making it um, in such a way that it's more lively. Um, that it's more, mm. it promotes more offense. Um, mm-hmm. So this is for a different league, we think, um, but it does show that Rawlings is kind of interested in um, how can we make a ball that is uh, promoting more offense while it still remains within the specifications of the league that it's designed for, mm-hmm. which has been one of the constant um, points that Manfred, uh, the commissioner of MLB Baseball, has, has uh, continuously made. He said, it's all. It's always remained within the specs, and that's true. It's just on the high end of those specs instead of the low end, and that's mm-hmm. enough to drive a huge increase in home runs. Mm-hmm. So the specs so are a little bit wide, I think, because that's what you're saying. Yeah, very wide, yeah. Um, to the point that two balls could be within both within the specs, and one would fly 
almost 50 feet further um, on a typical home run trajectory than Jeez. the other one. Jeez, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that wonder, is pretty have amazing. The spe- have the specs remained the same for decades? I mean, manufacturing technology should be able to bring the variance down so much you'd expect you could get away with tighter specs these days. Yes, um, the specs have remained the same for quite a while, and yes, the, the technology has improved. And according to everything that we've seen, the actual in-practice specs that they have are much, much tighter than that. Okay. So when he says that when he says that the balls are still within specs, you have to take that with a grain of salt because he's referring to these decades-old specs right. where probably six sigma wide, yeah. spherical, and you know five ounces uh, is yeah. going to be roughly within <laughs> right. the specs. So what what do you make of this, Rob Arthur? What do you once you've done that, and you're still doing some research on it, but but I mean, is this the is the is this the league looking for more? Offense. Zip and and if so, is that such a bad? They, do people just want them to admit it? I mean, do, why do people care? So yeah, much? I mean, if it's still within specs, why hasn't the league admitted it? If yeah. it really there really was well, there, an and, intent, and, I, and there is a report coming out. There's a massive re- report that they undertook, which is supposed to be released some point soon. Yeah, I think that um, at this point, there's some maybe embarrassment about having let the ball change without um, giving official acknowledgement. Um, I know they're working on this report. Um, I personally don't mind additional home runs. I think the the game is very exciting as it stands now. Um, but I I do sympathize in particular with the players who have to play in a different way than they're used to. I mean, they had to adjust their tactics quite heavily to deal with this new baseball that seems to be traveling a lot further. So Justin Verlander, in response to my article, he tweeted out that he didn't mind the ball being changed because it's an even playing field. But he did mind being lied to by the league. Yeah. And so I think that's a common sentiment okay. among baseball players, and in particular among pitchers, of course, who their livelihood depends on being able to pitch. Right, right, right. And then, you know, sports is always, is, there's always a question of equilibrium. Um, I hear that there's some stadium out west that's putting a humidor in the stadium. What's the story on that? Yeah, Chase Field in Arizona, the home of the Diamondbacks, they're interested in or actually are going to be putting in a humidor, um, which uh, that we'd sort of talked about that, touched on that before, but by um, standardizing the conditions of the baseball, you can actually affect how they perform. And so this humidor is going to probably depress offense in Chase Field um, to a significant degree. Why, why do they want to do that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's been a, it was kind of a puzzling decision. I mean, uh, Chase Field isn't, isn't extreme offensively, the last time the league installed a humidor anywhere, that was in Coors Field, and I believe it was 2001. And that was because offense was so off the charts in Coors that right. it was it was just breaking every record imaginable. Right. Um, so they put in this they put in this humidor, and it, it reduced the advantage. Coors is still a very extreme ballpark in almost every respect, but it's not you know off the charts. Yeah, it's not it's crazy. Sort of Home runs are not. Yeah. They also think I think they also expanded the the park. I mean, the fences move the fences back too. Yeah, which actually had the consequence of making for a lot more doubles. Oh, singles. Singles, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't actually depress offense; right. it just depressed home runs. Right. Is that right? right. Sure, a lot of space but, out there. But Chase Field doesn't like that. It's it's a it's a hitter friendly park, but not it's not close to where Coors was. It's not even close to where Coors is now. So it's kind of puzzling that they would choose to do that. I, I think it's going to turn Chase from a hitter-friendly park to a pitcher-friendly park right. quite rapidly. I, I would think. I, would think that, I mean, you could imagine that would that might align with some change in personnel, like maybe right. they're, if they're going towards a more pitcher-friendly team or something like that. I, I don't know if they, I haven't been tracking Arizona closely enough to know if that actually does align. 
this it's it's it introduces a new v- variable for clubs to play with you yeah. have, that humidity level of your park you can imagine down i would think most would want to would dial it down like let's get a dehumidifier in there and you know crank up the offense if you're houston for example mm-hmm. i mean by the, never mind the fact that it's humid in houston let's just increase our offense yeah so, it could be that it could be also i think that um a possible explanation is um, Rob Manfred has been talking about making teams store the baseballs in a consistent way, um, and they're taking steps towards that. I believe this year they're requiring teams to store them in an air-conditioned room as opposed to just wherever. So it might just be that Arizona is ahead of the curve that's going to require all MLB teams to store their baseballs in a, in a humidifier under constant conditions. Um, that is something I wonder about, but I guess we'll find out depending on what requirements MLB puts on them going forward. Rob, last question, and we're down to just a little bit of time, but you said this explains, the ball explains about half the increase in home runs. Bigger picture, what are the other factors that are driving the increase? Well, I think one of the most interesting ones, and we kind of touched on this, is that if you have a more lively ball and hitters notice that, then, of course, what they're going to start trying to do is trying to hit more home runs. And in this case, what they're doing is uh, elevating their swings so to drive the ball further up in the air, and now that the air resistance is lower, uh, a ball that's hit in the air is going is more likely to be productive, more likely to be a home run than it was before. Mm-hmm. So there's this concept in baseball of the fly ball revolution, that all these hitters are tailoring their swings to have more uppercut in them so that they can drive the ball into the air and see what mm-hmm. happens. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of hitters are now doing that, and that mm-hmm. explains a good chunk of the increase in home runs as well. Got it. All right. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for the work. We look forward to seeing with what, what you come up with next. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That was Rob Arthur. Rob is journalist and consultant covering baseball, criminal justice, politics, and other topics. He writes for 538, the New York Times, and other outlets. You can see him on Twitter at no underscore little underscore plans. At no little plans. No underscore little underscore plans. That was Rob Arthur. That is the first half of our show. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Eric is out and we'll be back. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. Give us a ring, 1-844-942-7866 or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Especially a good way to reach us if you're listening one of the four or five times we're replayed over the course of the week. You can follow us on Twitter. Handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall for uh, a feed on sports analytics we, we kick things around over the course of the week, follow our guests, that kind of thing. Just off the phone with uh, terrific, interesting research on uh, the, the increase of home runs in baseball. Rob Arthur was doing that as a journalist. And we're changing gears now to the probably the biggest event activity in sports world right now, at least in North America, the, the basketball tournament. So the mm-hmm. tournament was seated on Sunday and uh, began the first four, started last night. The real thing kicks in tomorrow, and it catches a lot of people's attention. Even the casual fan pays attention to college basketball when the tournament rolls around. Absolutely. So to help us um, understand some of the dynamics and to dig into the numbers of the March Madness Tournament, we have 
two academics joining us in the next half hour. Dan Stone and Jeremy Arcus have done some research. They do a lot of interesting research, but this particular paper is on how teams are seeded and the impact that momentum has on those seeds. And I'm sure we're going to learn a few things from Dan and Jeremy. Dan, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Dan is assistant professor of economics at Bowdoin College up in Maine. And uh, before that, he was at Oregon State. He does research on belief formation, decision-making under uncertainty, how you revise your beliefs. This is stuff that we could talk about all day long. We do typically talk about all show long around here. Jeremy is associate professor out at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. They do a bunch of interesting work out there. Ridiculous location you guys have. That's got to be a good gig. Jeremy? And it's pretty nice being out here, yes. I do I do miss those New England winters, though. Well, I'm sure Dan would be happy to have you. You can yeah, visit any time, I <laughs> he think. He would trade spots with you about about February or so. Um, but are you guys... Are you it's, call- uh, it's good weather for getting some work done, though. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So you guys are are you calling in from your respective homes right now? Yeah, we we are. Yep. So that's about as far as you can be away from each other and still be in the United States. So Dan's calling from yeah. Maine. Jeremy's calling from California. Appreciate you, Jeremy, especially getting up this early. So oh, yeah, yes. Listen, you guys, you guys have done. An, uh, I've I've seen Dan's work over the years, and I was delighted to see this paper come out. We knew we'd be talking about March Madness a little bit, and we're always interested in new new analyses, and we're always interested in this question of hot hands you know it's been a topic in the decision-making literature and then you know increasingly you know economics literature for decades and the the initial observation was that people see the hot hand where it doesn't exist they believe that after a basketball player for example is makes makes a shot he's more likely to make the next shot and players seem to believe this they pass the ball to guys who have made a shot and the statistical analysis, the historical finding, and still, still, this is this hole is not quite as big as it used to be. The analysis shows that the hot hand isn't there, at least not as much as people see. So that's kind of the starting place. And this thing has been analyzed in a zillion places over the decades. You guys come in and ask, does it have any impact on how the committee seeds the college basketball tournament? Do I do I have that right? Have I framed that correctly? That's yes. That's a good good framework, I believe. So, so Dan, can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this particular research project, and and what exactly the question was that you wanted to dig into? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as you said, uh, the hot hand has been sort of a, a, a big topic in um, economics and psychology for for sort of decades now, and it was. Uh, sort of uh, became conventional wisdom that even though everyone believes that, that players, of course, get hot from time to time, it seemed like that wasn't showing up in the data. Um, now, that, that's that been um, questioned, uh, and it's I think uh, the evidence is pretty strong in the other direction um, now for, for basketball shooting um, in terms of uh, number of papers that have come out in the last five or ten years. So I, I'm not sure to what extent you guys are, are, are up to speed on that stuff. I, you know, the, the the most recent paper is is a little bit difficult to take in, so I'm yeah. not going to try to replicate it. I, I couldn't replicate it off the top of my head. But yeah. my takeaway my takeaway is that yeah, there's a little bit of positive station positive um, serial correlation, 
but not as much as people believe. So I, I'm quite happy to grant that there's a little bit of hot hand because okay. yeah, I, I think it pales well, in comparison to what coaches, players, fans, commenters believe there is. Well, we, we as statisticians are always we're natural skeptics, and we know there's so many players out there. And if there is a hot hand, it's likely to be a small effect, and therefore a lot of it takes you don't have the 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 power to to detect signals which are yeah i mean i I always put it in the same category as sort of like this concept of clutchness in baseball or something like that there's probably there probably are players out there that do discernibly show better performance in high leverage situations it's just it's rare enough that it would be hard to kind of you know statistically prove some kind of significance result yeah well okay so yeah um can i so you know about Josh Miller and, and Adam Sanjurjo's, I think that's how you say his name. Um, so those names, uh, so these are the guys that they've done several papers now um, in the last five or so years, and, and they, would, they would push back um, you know, against the claim that, sure, there is some hot hand, but the magnitude is small enough that it's, it's as if it's, it, you know, we don't need to worry about it much. Um, and, in basketball or? or yeah, yeah, basketball, okay. individual basketball yeah. shooting. So they have a, a theory paper, which is, uh, I think it's conditionally accepted in Econometrica, not to to get too techy here. Um, which so they they basically claim uh, most of the the previous work, including the sort of seminal Amos Tversky paper, uh, had a pretty significant bias in the analysis. And um, basically, correcting for that, they 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 say that the magnitudes of the hot hand, even in the original Tversky uh, experimental data, are, are can be pretty substantial. So. I I definitely um, I wish I knew the exact numbers off the top of my head, but you know effects of at least ten percentage points for you know a substantial fraction of players, and if you've made your last two or three shots in a row, um, you're you're ten percentage points higher on your next shot, that sort of thing. And uh, they they have some new experimental data. They do some other things. So. So I'm not going to – those are the guys to talk to to have the, have the debate about the individual, uh, you know, to what extent the hot hand is sort of is, – is still, you know, basically we can ignore it for individual shooters or, or whether it is real and substantial. Um, and and the, the other thing that they um, – I think, a, you know, a sort of basic contribution that, that, they, made, that they made, sorry, is uh, the distinction between the hot and the cold hand. So that sort of got ignored in a lot of this previous literature. And, you know, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense that, that these things are not necessarily going to be symmetric and um, coldness is, is indeed a lot more, you know, prevalent. So even, you know, good players can fall apart and the magnitudes are, are going to be bigger there. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. You watch basketball, you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me add yeah. here that um, Dan, Dan had a great paper himself uh, that showed that it's not just lack of power, why these past studies haven't uh, found much of an effect, but it's also really, you know, I guess consider um, uh, consistent with Miller and Sanyer, you know, that, that there's a bias towards finding no effect. And, and so Dan's paper dealt with the measurement error that we're not correctly classifying people into that hot state versus the normal state. Right. And then, then I followed that up with a paper that's the, where I actually did a simulation where I said, okay, let's say there's a 20 percentage point hot hand effect. And what I was finding is that when you test, when you test that, you know, here I just gave people the hot hand and a 20 percentage point higher right. uh, probability of making a shot, and yet I was only seeing a 3 percentage point higher probability of making a hot shot because of that 
that sounds like you're doing statistics wrong. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. If if there's a 20% effect in there and you're you're not seeing it. But this is the point. This is exactly the point of this this recent development in the literature is that the way people have historically tried to figure out whether it's there, including the seminal paper, was wrong. And yeah, so that that's that correct. and and yeah. what and what what Jeremy was just saying is that here's one way to talk about magnitude, drop in a twenty percent hot that's right. hot hand factor and and using and analyze it in this historical in fashion way. and you miss it. Right? Yeah, so, that's, that's right. interesting. So let's that yeah. that is that is a that is a great update and and a important development in the literature. For the moment, we want right. to hear what you did with this. Right, sure. Yeah, so that's just background on, um, you know, our uh, the hot hand stuff. And, and so we've been interested in this for a while, interested in hot hand beliefs to what extent. You know, suppose even if players do get hot, that doesn't mean that uh, players or anyone actually identifies when they get hot the right amount. There could still be overestimation of hotness. Um, and uh, there's another question of how this translates to team play. To what extent, you know, do teams get hotter beliefs accurate? And and so we're we're sort of always on the lookout for good data to uh, analyze this kind of thing. And we we thought that um, NCAA tournament data could be good. Um, so we uh, specifically, you know, you've got pretty good data on beliefs heading into the tournament, being the the, the way that the teams are seated, and uh, you can look to see how they perform in the tournament, and, and great data on how they perform just just prior to those seeds being uh, set. So you can basically pretty easily look to see whether the seeds incorporate um, recent performance accurately or not. And we, we actually suspected, you know, the standard finding is, is this hot hand bias of overreaction to recent play. So we, we suspected that the, the NCAA uh, seeds would sort of put too much weight on the recent play, that the teams that were hot heading into the tournament would be, would be overseeded and that cold teams would be underseeded. Um, and, and that's that's not what we found. One other uh, sort of interesting sort of twist on this on this setup is or this context is that the seeds are determined by by committee, of course. And uh, so you know, committee decisions that's a whole other sort of animal from from what types of decisions and beliefs are, are typically analyzed in, in the literature. And uh, so it's you know that's that's a that's a nice sort of aspect to it as well because of course. A lot of uh, important decisions are made by committee in all sorts of contexts. So hold on. What what impact do you think the committee structure has on this particular issue? Do you think it is likely to mitigate or exacerbate any perception or mis- or bias? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so I, cert- um, I, I don't know of any uh, theory work <laughs> that, that, um, you know, right, that goes through a model of whether uh, committee um, – committee decisions or com- uh, committee interactions would, would exacerbate or mitigate this bias in particular. But in general, we know, you know, committees, groupthink um, can lead to problems. Um, and uh, I, I kind of suspected that um, this wouldn't be a particularly, you know, uh, well-structured committee for, for mitigating a bias. So, I, I suspected that the committee's bias would be kind of similar to a, a typical individual's, that because this committee consists of a bunch of people sort of doing it on the side, you've got these athletic directors and people with day jobs, that um, that that the committee would have a, a fairly, you know, my, my prior wasn't that their their bias would be would be lower. I thought it'd be sort of similar to to individuals. Right. So it, you know they use lots of different different data to make these. To, to seed the brackets, and there's 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 a lot of consternation about what data they use. The RPI, yep. for example, has been used for years, and people don't yep. really value it much anymore. So one thing that I've heard just a little bit of talk about, I wasn't paying that much attention, but your paper is right on it, 
they used to explicitly consider like the last ten games or something, and I think this year right. they've decided not to consider the last ten games explicitly. Do, have you paid attention to this development? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? Um, be, um, it certainly relates directly to to what we're looking at, and, and yeah, it, um, from our from what we were able to figure out, and it, it wasn't. It seems that it's not reported super clearly, but the change was made um, starting in 2010. Prior to that, they explicitly looked at performance, recent performance, performance, like you said, in the last 10 or 12 games just before the, uh, the NCAA tournament. And starting in 2010, they did not, they don't give committee members that information split out. In the official guidelines, they, they, they really uh, dance around the topic. They don't say anything either way. They don't say that we're going to uh, put you know more or less weight on on recent performance, but there's this sort of um, this sort of common phrase of body of work that the teams are going to be evaluated based on their body of work, and it's implied that they're um, that I guess early season games are 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 supposed to be weighted about as equally or maybe exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, so as, interesting. As you know, so that can explain, like, Oklahoma or Arizona State making the tournament. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, Oklahoma, what was their losing streak? Or what was their last their performance in the last 10 or 12 games was? Something like 2 and 8. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you, yeah. guys, you guys build predictive models. If you were going to build a predictive model based on performance, you would have some kind of non-stationarity in there. I mean, teams change. I mean, in, for injuries alone, Teams yeah. change, so yeah. you would you yeah. would decay the distant past more than the recent past just from a normative model, right? Oh, cer- yeah, certainly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and the committee they do acknowledge they they do take into account injuries actually, which seems a a little bit internally inconsistent um, in that you know they're acknowledging so the seeds are not supposed to just be a ranking of you know performance across the season if if they're incorporating injuries they're already saying that. You know they're going to treat certain games differently, right? Um, so they're, yeah. So they made this change, and, and it, as far as we could tell, they didn't say why they made the change in 2010, and they also made it in a fairly opaque way because it's it's not stated. They do report these, you know, if you Google it, you can find this PDF stating the the guidelines and criteria for determining the seeds, and it doesn't doesn't say this directly that they're going to weight the games equally but that's what they tell the media okay got it we're talking to dan stone assistant professor of economics at bowden college and jeremy arcus associate professor at the naval postgrad school in monterey california they have done recent work on uh, whether the committee makes a mistake about hot hands in seeding the college basketball tournament let's just generalize this for a second people talk about this in every sport essentially like they talk about you know, the Giants are hot ending the season. That means they're going to do well in the playoffs. Or so-and-so is on a run well, running we into the hockey. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, 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 well, we talk about how, you know, maybe why the wild card teams might actually do well in the playoffs is because to become the wild card team, you had to kind of basically be on a hot streak. That's not even true. Or you can no, fall it's not true. <laughs> you could win the wild card game, I suppose. Yeah. But, Get back into it. But yeah. the, 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 the point is that this is an active conversation in all sports. And then, of course, yeah. you know, perception of momentum is important far beyond sports. So you take us to a new setting and you end up finding kind of a counterintuitive result. You find that not only do they not perceive hot hand where it doesn't exist, they don't overweight momentum, they underweight it in your observation. This is right? So actually I have a... Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that's correct, but this is... It's not exactly counterintuitive that it is consistent uh, with the story that 
the committee is buying into the argument that there is no hot hand, that the hot hand's a myth. Yeah, so I'm so I'm, a, I'm just revealing my, my bias from d- decades in the, this particular literature, which says that people are going to over-perceive hot hand. And you guys are, are coming at this from, like, the new developments in the literature, which says, ah, actually, maybe people are under-perceiving hot hand. Maybe it's there, maybe people don't. We, the thing is, just yeah. because hot hand is over-perceived in basketball, or ha- that's been the observed fact for decades and could be changing now doesn't mean that that's the case in every domain i mean we shouldn't have such a strong prior on whether people are going to get it right or wrong in a new domain so i don't know that we would have i mean you would certainly have a conventional wisdom out of the judgment decision making literature historically on what you'd see here but i'm not sure that you really we really should i mean this is a hard thing to get right in any predictive model a huge variable that is totally under-researched, frankly, in the literature is how much non-stationarity you have. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental yeah, input I, in a predictive model. And so it's easy to get wrong in either direction. And, and, and yeah. Anyway, I, I think it's a terrific setting you've given us here. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to better understand the actual observation. But these, yeah. are also, these, are, these are college kids. I mean, these are NCAA basketball teams. They, as a percentage of their lives, a season is actually somewhat substantive. <laughs> and you talk about Kentucky, which is, starts off with a bunch of freshmen. Yeah. You move to the end of the season, that's an actual, actual substantive amount of See, time. See, we're talking mm-hmm. ourselves into a lot of non-stationary, yeah. a lot of decay that's in these right. models. We want a lot of decay as, as kind of yeah. casual yeah. theorists here. And a yeah. good example of this is Kentucky a couple of years ago when they were an eight seed, which probably reflected their body of work, but they were clearly better, and that's the year that they mm-hmm. knocked off number one Wichita State. Okay, right. see, now we're working our way up to news people can use, which is, yeah. you know, well, one, we want to hear more about the strength of the effect that you found and anything else you have to say, but where we want to land, of course, is what does it say for the 2018 tournament? Which are the teams where, if you, if you bake a little more non-stationarity in there and you bake a little more on momentum, who you'd like to, to make, see make a run in the tournament? Yeah, um, sure. So we actually, yeah, we do. Uh, we did a little research on that for you guys, but um, yeah, I just want to clarify a couple things. You know, we sort of covered a lot of ground here, um, and uh, want to clarify first that you know Jeremy and I are are not questioning um, you know the general existence of of a bias towards seeing hotness, um, you know, too soon. Seeing hotness when it's when it's not really there, right? So. You know, you flip the coin three times and it's heads, and, and people will think it's hot. And some, so we're not questioning that, but um, yeah, we do find that um, that that momentum or hot and coldness is underrated in the seeds. Now, starting in 2010, when they were supposed to ignore hotness and coldness, that, that's not too surprising. But even prior to 2010, when they were supposed to incorporate the recent performance, um, it seems they still underreacted. They still underestimated um, the importance of the recent games. So you, you mentioned, you know, interest in magnitude. So we uh, find something like we use Sagarin ratings for the measure of team quality. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if you guys are okay with that. That was those we'll, were the ratings that were we'll, available. We'll, we'll we'll grant you that for the yeah. time being. We'd rather you use Ken Pomroy, yeah. but that's all right. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't tell Ken Pom. Does he go um, way back? I mean, you guys have been using this since. Prior to 2010, I think Sagarin does. Well, go, Sagarin goes back to the seven. He goes a long right. way. So. Well, that's that's the beauty. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. Yeah, the data's out there, and it's yeah. it's, it's pretty good. So um, at one point, so it, we find that it's the last two weeks prior to the NCAA's that, that that has a big effect. So if you go back three weeks, the effect drops off a lot. But two weeks prior, if your Sagarin rating goes up a point, 
your 3.2 or about you know three percentage points high, uh, more likely to win any given NCAA Wait. tournament game. Can I put that into context of Sagarin points? So yeah. if your Sagarin's Sagarin point went up one point, Sagarin that translates directly, to how many percent? It directly translates into point spread. Sagarin's built yeah. so that you can read a point spread off of right. it. Right. So a point yeah. spread is what percentage? So in other words, what you're essentially saying is that Sagarin doesn't uh, underreacts. He should have put in two points or three points or whatever it is instead of one. Uh, no. Okay. So comparing a Sagarin point is is like a point scored in a game. Yeah. That predicts a three point two percentage point increase in the probability of winning. Okay. So so what yeah. you're saying is the Sagarin point went up by one point two weeks prior. Mm-hmm. That that's that's already in the, incorporated. In the last Weeks. In the last in the two last, weeks, but last, so it should yeah. it predicts about an extra three percent, so it should have gone up two. <laughs> uh, well, but you're you're making a translation from points uh, points to vic, the probability of victory. I yeah. do. It. Yeah. yeah. No, we're saying conditional on your your seed in the in the NCAA tournament, and also conditional on your prior Sagarin level. So we're not making a comment on. We can't say anything about whether the Sagarin rating went up enough or too much or that sort of thing. Okay, but but you're you're saying that a performance in the last two weeks and it's strongest in the last two and not three, so that's going to include the conference tournament, for example, mm-hmm. is is predictive of outperforming the seed yep. in the tournament, right? Even prior to 2010, and and basic explanation is it's you know the committee members are given perform data on the last 10 games, but it's really the last several games, and it's just too much information for them to uh, to process, right? They're just not able to look at the performance in this the two games prior to the conference tournament. Have you, have you guys looked at something as simple as if you seeded optimally, what's the average shift in the seed, something like that? Like are we talking about hot teams should have should be one seed higher? Yeah. Two seeds yeah. higher? I mean, is it can we talk about it in those terms? Well, it depends uh, between like 4 and Twelve. There's very little. Yeah, we try to difference. do something on magnitudes like yeah. that. Um, that's at the end. Of it. it depends on where they are in the distribution. Yeah. It's harder to move up at the top, but mm-hmm. if you're in the middle, it might move you a little bit. Bunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which would um, have big implications for me. We know that seeds, you know, higher seeds have better, you know, better draws, and they're likely going to do better just from having a higher seed alone. Yeah, we did some sort of, you know, back of the envelope ish <laughs> calculation for that, and found that about five percent of teams, I think had seeds that were off by at least two um, because of the neglect of the recent information. So sort of a reasonable magnitude. Okay, so it's not... like three teams. Well, it's not that many teams, but it's a relatively big difference for those. So the teams that are... The teams that really are hotter late in the season get shorted to the tune of a couple of seeds, which can make a, which can make a pretty big difference. Yeah. So one of the things that I looked at in preparation for the tournament was I, I essentially looked at three ways of ranking a team, the rank, the seed, the Vegas rank, and the Ken Pomeroy rank, if you will. And what surprised mm-hmm. me, now we're having this conversation, is how similar they were. The seed too. The seed. The seed. The seed was the only one that was was yeah, occasionally seed. different. Yeah, the seeds. Not, the the not, Vegas yeah. and the Pomeroy were practically the same. Well, that's because Pomeroy um, is good. Yeah, and I think, and for, and, the, and for all I know, I think Vegas starts at Pomeroy or something. Could, it could yeah. go the other way around, but they're very good. But there really wasn't that many teams that that the <laughs> seed, the underdog, was predicted to beat the the favorite by the seed. I bet that's improved just like over three, time. It's like three teams. But, just, but how many, how far back did you go? I'd oh, I just went this, I'm just looking yeah, at this just season, this just year, this yeah. year. No, I didn't go back was, far at all. <laughs> so Dan and Jeremy, what's your sense of how 
how seating has improved over time? Because my my lay sense is that they used to be a lot, rough, a lot rougher than yeah. they are than they are now. I can't really speak to that. I don't know if you can, Dan. Yeah, no, we. <laughs> I think our data show that that the seeds are less predictive. They're, they're less accurate in the recent year. More is that right? Years. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, I wonder what I, that would be. Yeah, um, and that wasn't our focus. It was kind of something that. Yeah, sure. You know, we figured it could be you know one and doneers making everything noisier. Who knows? Um, but yeah, um, yeah. that's maybe another paper. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. So, guys, the implications yeah, for this, right. you need this some tournament. You need some teams. Exactly. Right? So who should Jeremy we be? Yeah. Who should we be bumping up a couple of seats? Yeah. Well, we got to give credit to uh, we farmed this out to to Professor uh, Raymond Skip Sauer of. Uh, Clemson University, his, All right. his uh, sports econ class. He gave him the assignment of finding the hot and cold teams. Excellent, excellent. Under, Let's hear yeah. what you got. Yeah. So um, you mentioned Oklahoma being cold. <laughs> yeah. They said Auburn is cold and overseeded. They said New Mexico State is hot. Um, so they like New Mexico State. They like Davidson. Um, so... That's about it. All right. Sell, sell. Would, Oklahoma uh, is actually interesting because Oklahoma is, is one of the examples where the, the Vegas and the Pomeroy <laughs> puts the, their 10 seed as the more likely winner against Rhode Island at 7. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that may, be, oh, okay. that may be just first-round stuff. So let me, let, yeah. we're, we're about to have to let you go. Let me, let, me, let me add one piece to the puzzle and ask what you do with it. Um, Nate Silver a few years ago said this thing in his bracket that we, we come back to a lot on this show. He said, my, my secret sauce in my bracket is preseason rankings. Hmm. That, that even after a 30 basketball games, you don't know as much about a team as you think, and that you should include your priors, and the preseason huh. rankings basically stand in for your priors. So you guys do, huh. this, you guys do this for a living. And um, the challenge, of course, is how do you bring together a model where you, you need to go back and remind yourself to, to include your priors, but also to allow for momentum at the end of season. How do you bring those, all those elements together in a model? Well, something seems wrong with including the priors, especially with these one and doneers that, that you really... Nate says it matters. Nate says it's in there. We tend yeah. to agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I buy it. I, I mean, yeah. Jeremy, I, do you want to say more? No, go ahead, Dan. Uh, well, we do find that the levels... The Sagarin rating levels um, at the end of the season, but you know, just prior to those last couple of weeks, are, are very predictive, condition, um, conditional on seed. So those are going to bake in the priors somewhat. But um, you know, we could throw in the Sagarin priors also, or some other priors. Um, yeah, I mean, people overreact to recent information. So if if the end of the season rankings are skewed because they're overreactions to what happened during the season, that's going to imply the priors are still have good information. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would buy that that's, that's more true for, you know, the priors are going to be tighter, more precise for, for some teams than others. Maybe, I, think, uh, I think one of the implications is that, I mean, think about three categories of information. You've got priors, <laughs> preseason expectations, and you have early season performance and you have late season performance. And the, what, we're ta- what we're basically put together here is that the thing that should be downweighted is early season performance. Don't chuck your priors. But weigh the season in a way that puts more on the late games and less on the early games. But keep your preseason expectations around. All right, fellas, Dan and Jeremy, appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Interesting research. Appreciate really the, the, 
the update and the slap across the face on the hot hand research. I think that's a, it's a good example of, <laughs> of yeah, that's, that slap in the face. Well, there's well, a, no, it's good to know that stuff is uh, you know it's it's still disseminating and that there's still. Uh... Well, I tell you what, we we know the we know the theory paper. I haven't seen the second paper, and what's more true, and this is a general thing that that I'm really sitting with, is that. These beliefs that we've grown up with, you know, we were indoctrinated with as graduate students, those are things that you have to you have to still hold loosely. And this is exactly what we push coaches on and scouts on and traditional people you gotta be open to new analytics. Well, here's yeah. an example. Here's an example of here's yeah. a long held belief. Yeah. From I mean, my child my academic childhood and it's a little bit hard to let go. You you gotta get Josh Miller on your show. He's a character and got a lot to say. All right, we can do that. Yeah. Interesting. Can, stuff, I, really. can I end with a great irony here? Sure. So, so all these uh, behavioral economic, economists and uh, statisticians and psychologists were saying that everybody, all the fans and players, were wrong and that they were seeing they were seeing patterns in data that was actually random. And now it turns out that they were the wrong ones who were seeing the <laughs> randomness in data that was actually patterned that actually had the hot hand. Well, that's that's a, that's well, this varies by per, sport. Yeah, prob- yeah. provocative. No, we'll we'll let you in on that. That's fine. We like yeah. provocation. Good. Dan Stone, Jeremy Arcus, appreciate you joining okay. us today. Good luck Thank with you your work. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Pleasure. Fellas, that has been uh, three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us out of the bottom of the hour with some skatey, skatey thing. Daniel Bruno, running the board, dependent on Daniel Bruno, lover. You can join the conversation with us this last half hour, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at at WMoneyBall, if you're a Twitter person. We are just off the phone with a couple of academic researchers. That conversation got a little academic. If you hung with us, we might have learned a few things, but it raises as many questions as the answer probably. We need to talk more about the hot hand clearly. There is only more debate, not less, as we go through time. I mean, I'm, I'm just happy for any kind of guidance on filling out my NCAA well, bracket. I feel like every year I just kind of look at random Well, that's where you know, we're going, Shane. That's names. exactly where we're going. What they told us was, yeah. based on performance in the last – Two weeks, which is what they found, did have some predictive mm-hmm. value. They that, said, that somehow the committee, at least in the most recent years, has been underweighting that. Underweighting that. Recency. So they, based on that model, they think Oklahoma and 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 Auburn are over, probably are probably over. seated a little too high, mm-hmm. and New Mexico State and who was the other Davidson? One? New Mexico State and Davidson are probably seated a little too low. So if you want to consider that as you. As you as you as you fill out your bracket, but that raises a general question, guys. How do you fill out brackets for these things? So we've done a little bit of this. We've we've Audie's did one. Shane now can fill in four I mean, four spots. No, that's right. I got I got I got my first four picks. <laughs> and I got I did I did a bracket as well. So let's talk about this a little bit. Audie, I, I'm, I'm told you're supposed to pick upsets, you know, because that sort of discer- discerns well, you from the a, field. But the art is, of course, picking the correct upsets. Because if you the, the art, yeah, because I because you know, I mean, I, I'll pick a bunch of upsets and then I'll look like a jabroni because I picked the wrong ones. And a what? A jabroni. What is that? You, you, a, a person who picks the wrong upsets. What reference is that? Do you guys not know the word jabroni? 
Do you know who we are? On? Is you it are? Eth- I hope it's not an ethnic slur. I, 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 I pray <laughs> it's not. It is, it's I, your fault. I pray it's not as well. I mean, honestly, I should probably you know research these terms. Is but this no, how y'all talked in Alberta? No, no, it's 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 a, it's a it's local a Philadelphia thing. Yeah. thing. Okay, then yeah. I'm guessing it's ethnic, and we should move well, on. Okay, well, it's not. All right, I, well, I, don't, I don't think I don't think it's it, very, I don't think it's, it's particularly it, politically charged. I'm anyway. hearing that it's not. I'm being anyway. waved away. Not okay. ethnic term. All, All right. right, jabroni. Just just Philly. It's just yeah, Philly. Just All right. Well, I've been here seven years. I'm still yeah. learning. Sounds things. like a cheesesteak proprietor. It does. It does. Or yeah. De Bruno, my my local favorite Italian market. I didn't mean to distract from the discussion, though. I mean, because I still have, I don't still don't have this bracket. I just don't have my bracket. Okay. Shane, I've got your bracket. Okay. I'm gonna tell you. Tell me, tell me how we I got call brackets. My bracket. We we got brackets. I tell you what. I, I got as brackets. A, as a, from a purely statistical perspective, if Adi's gonna tell, Adi has a fancy term for the bracket that I constructed. I, I forgot what it was for a couple of years ago, but here's what my, my I picked up from my advisor and now good friend George Wu back at Chicago back in the day. He just he just calculated the odds of winning given the difference between the seeds of any two teams, and then just. Odds of picking the winner? No, odds of winning a game. And he Mm -hmm. would just randomly simulate a winner based on that probability for all 63 games. And it would just be... Purely random. So you just do one coin that's not flip. A good, that's not a good model I mean, for picking a, a Well, I mean, so that's what I want to talk about. I want to hear the full extent Hold of on. the model before you dismiss it, though. <laughs> but yes. um, so he basically just did one coin flip per game based on the kind of historical 1 versus 16. Two. Like, not Correct. with any, a, anything uh, about look, the teams is, themselves built in. This is in. 20 years ago, and it's a quick and easy way to yep. do what? Adi, before you get all negative, you, well, what do you like about negative. this? I'm not negative. Naughty starts negative, man. The thing you like about this is it's going to give you an appropriate number of upsets. Correct. It, it, it also, you're acknowledging you're unlikely to pick any better these games than the right. market or the right. seeds. I mean, there's so much chance. Right. So you might as well. And when, when I pick the when I pick the wrong upsets, like a jabroni, I can blame my computer. That's right. You can just, now it's just totally chance you don't feel yeah. as bad about yeah. it. But what it does, you embrace chance, and then you say, at least my model is representative of the the randomness in the tournament, and you have a name for that. You gave it to us a couple of years ago. You've lost it. Now? Typical. What's the word? It's typical. No. I, mean, typical I, would, I would use the word calibrate or something like that. It's no, calibrate I mean, so, to the correct so, number no, of here's upsets. The, here, the, here's the, here's a, a mathematical term. Okay. I mean, but, but basically, a, uh, you know, there's it's called the equi- equipartition theorem, and essentially, this this set of observations that have the the right number of upsets are far more likely than. Then sequences or, or brackets, you can call them in this case, that have the, the wrong number of upsets. So if you're going to pick a winner, it's going to have, a, have to have a certain set of characteristics. And if you randomly simulate that, when you're going to pick from that pool, yeah. the problem is that pool is in, incredibly big. For sure. Absolutely, yeah. for sure. So yeah, yeah. if you ask a question, like, if, if, so the first thing you can start with when you're doing bracketology is, is what there, I would but call... But there's, there's an elegance in doing it that way, right? So if you care about statistics, you care about, prop, you care about probability right. in particular, you'd like your bracket to be typical. Okay, so here's the question. So let's say you do this random... What else can we really aim for? You're not going to win, and you don't really know what you're talking about, and so you can at least have the elegance of a typical bracket. That's the claim. That's true, So and that's, that's a good idea. So, for example, if you want some, something a hard number, you should be looking at about... Five to eight or nine upsets in the first round. But okay. I mean, but again, what are you calling an upset, they? right? So like, an upset like, is, is an eight beating a nine team an upset? Yes, technically it is. Or a nine team beating. So gonna, if you're going to put them somewhere, you're not going to put them at one beating, you know, 16 beating well, one. Right. You're going to try to, you're going to try to hanker them or anchor but them. But presumably down the you'd actually want to look at the historical rate of upsets per kind of seed pair. 
right? So well, one to sixteen, that. we know that doesn't happen. Well, the, so we just don't but, put but that in our a, bracket. But Shane, there is a norm for calling an upset a seed difference. That based on seeds. I mean, people just talk about that, right? I mean, yeah, that's that's the. That's I'm just the saying, like that hard and fast number of five upsets. That I, I would. The f- natural fall question is, what kind of upsets do we typically so, see? Well, right. Well, they're gonna. We, we 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 know we don't see one versus sixteen well, that's, upsets. That's, well, that's part of the typicality is that the upset should be in the right places. Yeah, all this is arguing for me still doing this random thing. One hundred percent. Look, yeah. guys, I'm just going to jump straight to what I did, and y'all can not like it, but. And then I'm going to do one other thing. All right, why don't you tell us what you did? What I did was I'll exactly, tell you what I, did. I just up, I took, I took, I updated George Wu's method yeah. with Audie Weiner statistical sophistication. So rather than just using seeds, Audie went in and got Ken Pomeroy ratings and translated those ratings, you know, the difference in those into ratings. Into a probability. Into a probability. He did this in a very fancy way. He calibrated it on the market. But the formula is beautiful and simple, and I'd like to tell our listeners what that is. But you can finish. And this is almost oh my goodness, yeah. Are you guys ready? No. You got your pens ready? <laughs> it's so out simple. There? I can, well, it's not that simple. It's yeah. not that, you made me do yeah. math. You gave, I did. You gave it to me in log odds I did. It's in log odds. But in log odds scale, it's so simple. <laughs> All right. Well, let's give it to us, man. Let's hear you this formula. take the Pomeroy differential. Uh-huh. So Ken Primer is essentially getting what's a, like a point spread. It's not yeah. a spread, but it it's a, essentially it a, a point. point spread. So you yeah. take the, the point spread between the Ken Pomeroy ratings for the two teams. You multiply it by 0.13. That's it. Obviously. That's, that's it. it. I mean, that's, that's the fit. That's, that's, that comes that's, from the data that's, analysis. That's log yeah. odds. Most people... And that that's equals... That's the log odds. So so you have to use and the log odds converter. Math. So you have to go E to that to that number divided by E to that number plus one. That gives you the problem. Yeah, that's all you got to do. You guys got that? That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Okay. Shane is like an anti-mathematician. He's just, he, he, well, he, I, he I reeks mean, anti-mathematics. No, no, no. I mean, you know, I... I okay. And so... Look, look. So I got Adi's formula. Yeah. I ran the probabilities, and then I just simmed every game. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Every game is a result of chance mm-hmm. based on probabilities given by Ken Pomeroy and Adi Weiner. So, and look, we're going to do it. Here's my bracket. It's on the board. You guys can see it. Here's a bracket right now. Oh, look at that. Who do we have? In the final four, we have Texas Tech versus Kansas. And we have Creighton versus Ohio State. And what is that? That's a three versus that, a one and an eight versus a five. Wow. But then, of course, bold, Kansas man. wins both games and Kansas, a one seed, ends up winning the thing. Of that's course. Just, that's just a sim. That's a sim. Yeah. So, look, hold on, hold on. You don't like that one? Let's do another one. I don't, I don't really like who wants Kansas to win the dang thing. There's a, mm. Now we have Virginia winning. Ooh, that's a boring Final Four. Villanova, that's Duke. A, that's a Final Four right Villanova, there. Villanova, Duke, Virginia, Michigan. One, two, one, three. That, that is that much closer happen. to maximum yeah. likelihood that's two, than that. That's two. Yeah, I want no, something else. No, Let's I, go I, another I sim. Yeah. Oh, we just got Houston in there. That's a little more interesting. Well, I, like I want oh. a bunch of twos and threes. And you can just, okay, tell me what's wrong about that. Oh, there's a fun one. Villanova, Seton Hall. So here's a semi. A he, one, eight, okay, here's semi. a question. This is, the, this is the, the, the heart of the matter. When you are entering a pool or, or a competition, are you entering once or are you entering many times? And because this really changes how you construct your brackets. I'm it, entering well, once personally. Yeah, I am only entering. So once. if you're entering once, once I'm not entering so you, once. you're going to sim through these, and because you're simulating and you're drawing random numbers, you are occasionally going to be predicting massive upsets. If you're entering once, is that is that the card you're going to bring to the right, table? Right, right, right. No, I want a typical bracket. If you, I don't you're know. Asking, I mean, I because you know, I mean, if you're entering once and you're in this pool of like thirty people, maybe you want that high variance. I mean, you know, I mean, you 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 take a you chance because if you want if, high if variance, you, hit, you win. Pools. If you hit, you win. That well, yeah, but this is if but, you happen to pick that one. But upset, when you're dealing you with thirty, 
no one else is picking it either, and you don't have to be so way out to win a. You don't oh, have I, to I guess, you yeah, for the large so of the out. pool, that's right. right. You so want I, the I was going to say, this is not a bad place to start, but then you might trim it back yep. the smaller the pool you're in. Right. But the bigger the pool, the more you The need. bigger pool. So, And also, typically with the bigger pools, Good. you get multiple entries. So I, there was a friend of mine from, from graduate school. His name is John Overdeck. He now runs a... Uh, a hedge fund, which is a billion dollar hedge fund or more. And he won the Stanford pool while we were, uh, we were graduate students in the NCA tournament. And this was a multi-entry big pool. And he used information theory and probability distributions to enter about maybe 500 different oh different brackets. I mean, people entered and each yeah. one cost you money, right? So you, So it wasn't like it was like it was free to do it. Like, and each one cost $5, $1, what it was. And he covered, he probably personally had, had contributed about one-tenth of the money into the, into the pot, but he probably had about a 90% chance of winning. And so it was a great play. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's what he did. So in other words, you use the te- technology that you're doing is great for, for creating a, a set of brackets where it's high probability that one of them will be close to, to the winner. Yeah. But then if you actually want to have any reasonable probability, For any, you need many of them. And mm-hmm. then you're saying this other thing, which is nice, which is you don't have to be that, quote, typical mm-hmm. in a smaller pool. So, for example, I mean, look, we all care about multiple things. I would rather take some teams that I'm pulling for deeper into the tournament, right? So at the very least, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to punch through here until I have, you know, again, my brother-in-law's season ticket holder for Texas Tech. So I'd like to see Texas Tech do for a while. Texas is, there we go. Now I got Tech in the final four. I got Tech and Duke and Virginia and Houston. Unfortunately, Tech loses that semi. Now it's Duke and Virginia in the final, and Virginia happily, my God, beats Grayson Allen and Duke. So there's a bracket for you. Tech, Duke, Virginia, Houston with Virginia taking overall number one seed taking the whole thing. What? How many upsets do I have in this thing? Over the course of the tournament, I have 21 upsets, where an upset is, a, a, su- a seed, higher a seed team beating the under the twenty one out of sixty three seems pretty high. That is high. I think the yeah. right number is about a quarter, so it's not that high. Okay, so right? a quarter would be sixteen. Yeah, I mean, uh, my my, my model mm-hmm. suggests well, the model that I built su- suggests that the first round is about seven to eight, and the next round four to five, mm-hmm. and it goes down about half. Mm-hmm. Actually, you should you know it's basically as the rounds get later, the fraction of upsets converge on half. Yeah, because the, the teams, teams tend to be the same. The same. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do with your – this is a purely statistical probability approach, Adi. You did something a little bit different. Well, I mean, I started by ca- calculating the maximum likelihood bracket, which is basically predicts all the way through that the, the higher – The, 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 the team you value the highest yeah, goes through and, and it, every if, game. And in some level, it's hard to argue that if you're in a small pool, right. that's not the place to be, mm-hmm. right? The highest maximum likelihood bracket, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very boring bracket because mm-hmm. it essentially predicts chalk, 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 it's, chalk. it's at the end of the day. Yeah. But you can kind of mo- multiply it all out, and you can say, for example, what's the chance that Virginia, which is the favorite in the tournament, wins the whole thing? Mm-hmm. And according to that probability, it comes out to be about seventeen percent. Mm-hmm. It's hard to argue with that probability, and it's interestingly enough, it lines up fairly closely with the Vegas bet you can make on the on the o- overall winner. Hmm. Just kind of rounds it right out. It's actually pretty much right on target, which suggests that Vegas thinks it's lower than that because the Vegas probability is... Virginia at 17% seems kind of high to well, they're, me. Well, it's right 5 to 1 right now. That's the bet. Interesting. Which so, is about so, they're, so they're valued, they're, they're considered that much better than the other ones? Because they, well, mean, they're you could 32 kind of, and 2 I, I mean, or something. Again, I mean, the, 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 so the naive person that yeah. I am would say, well, even if you could put them in, guarantee me to get to the final four, I put them at 25%. Yeah. Well, they're, they are a, they're, the path to the final four for them is clearer than it is for others. 
and this is a, this is part of it. Yeah. And, and they are they are a half a point by by Pomeroy, okay. better than Villanova. So it's like All hardly, right. you know, Villanova's at eleven percent, so it's not much of a difference. Well, yeah, the, eleven to seventeen I, sounds a, like a big. There must be a path. If there's only half a point difference in yeah. Palm, then it's then it's a path. Well, um, the path helps explain it because I worry in situations like this. My 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 heuristic in situations like this is that the most likely outcome is judged more likely than it actually is. So whenever there are many many things that could happen, yeah, we tend to look at the one that's most likely as. As like a certain, we, we give it too much power. Yeah, yeah. we interpret uh, most likely as likely. I mean, my most likely, likely bracket has essentially zero probability. I mean, yeah. It's not going to happen. But most likely brackets are a different thing. But like the team, the yeah. favorite team is in, in something where the favorite team is actually not likely to win tends psychologically to get too much weight because they are clearly the favorite team. It's just that there are so many other things that can happen. We're not good at considering all these other things. That could happen. Okay, so Adi, I think you know, in a, in, a, in depending on the kind of pool we were to enter, we could kind of blend these two approaches. We could start with my, you know, typical stochastic one, and then just start. Ah, oh, let's let's keep some of the favorites around a little longer. We could just kind of kind of bastardize this thing to make it a little more. Well, likely. I would look at some of the the size of the upsets you forecasted. I mean, because think about it, a five percent probability is a huge upset. Yeah. But if you are forecasting 63 matches, yeah. you're going to have you're going to get, get a couple and of those. you're going to knock and out some big teams. Some big teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, so I would go and sort of correct those if I'm yeah. in a small pool. Good. For good. sure. Good. Okay. Very good. Well, we have started a tradition around here that uh, we do a little feature here at the end of the show. It's Wharton Moneyballs over under. <laughs> That's a new, what do they call those things again? What, that's imaging. That's our new imaging. That's the first time for the over under. You can let us know Love it. what you think about Love that. It. it was a little bit bigger than I thought it was going to be. All right. So we have over unders. Uh, what do we have this week, guys? We got a handful. I'm not sure if you brought any in yourself, but Maddie Dodds gave me a handful that we'll try out. Something we've not talked about this show because we've been focused on other areas is. Free agency, NFL free agency opened today. NFL, you, it's, it's, like a, crazy. it's like a, a, a tractor it's a, to you. You just a, can't a, get away from it. It's an all, well, it's, all it's, year it's, round. It's, it's all consuming. It's all. It's twelve months a year, Audie. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else you'd expect. Um, so, free agency officially opens today. They have been talking. Unlike baseball, stuff happens during it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, baseballs. I don't know, one month a year as far as I'm concerned. No, more, more happened season. in one day in NFL yeah. than has happened the yeah, entire offseason Baseball has been very, very, very slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to withhold But there was a big signing, and Phillies did I'm pick up our I'm trying to give you an over-under from the NFL. Yeah, okay, what you got? I'm trying to give you an over-under. So there was kind of a quarterback circus this year. The free agent quarterbacks, Drew Brees, Sam Bradford. Mostly due to just Minnesota. <laughs> well, that's true. They dealt Teddy Bridgewater. Um, they signed Kirk Cousins. Um, and Case Keenum. So Breeze, Bradford, Cousins, Keenum, Bridgewater. How many Super Bowls will those free agents win in the in the remainder of their career? You have five. And it includes Breeze, who went back to the New Orleans Saints. Four of these guys changed teams. Bradford, Cousins, Keenum, Bridgewater. How many Super Bowls? The over-under is set at .5. Yeah, so, so, so do any of those win a Super do Bowl? Do any of those ever win a Super Bowl? Breeze, How old are Bradford, they? Breeze is 40, or close to 40, 39. That's right. Bridgewater's young. He's only about four years out. But he's going to the Jets, so forget that. <laughs> well, you know, they could go on from there. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. true. Case Keenum is probably, I don't know, he's about the same age as Bridgewater, right? Cousins is a little bit older. Bradford is just a tad older as well. So can I ask you a question? I mean, as, a, as an NFL non-expert, where would you put these five in the rankings? Are they all top half? 
Breeze's Hall of Fame. Well, yes, but he's old, so he doesn't have very much time left. Kirk Cousins is top half for sure. No, Kirk Cousins is top third at least. Kirk Cousins I think. is probably top especially, third. especially over the next five years. Uh, two weeks ago, um, our friend Shane went to went to the mat for Kirk Cousins. Yeah, I think he's fantastic. Uh, Bridgewater has barely played. Uh, Case Keenum has is people people are like suspicious about Case Keenum. Sam Bradford is like he's plugging along as kind of a mid guy, mid tier, yeah. third quarter guy, and we need to move along. So can we add him up? So I'm going to add zero for Bradford, zero for Bridgewater. Cousins is the guy who's got the, the all the money mm-hmm. and breeze, and so essentially you're betting here on. I'll on, take the on, over. On I'll take Cousins. Cousins. I'm, I'm, I'm going taking, over. Yeah, I'm going to take the over too because I think Cousins has one in him. Yeah, yeah. Could, could be. Uh, it, Shane's convinced us. All right, that we just talked about in NCAA basketball, the seed that wins the tournament, the seed of the team that wins the tournament, the over under is set at one point five. I'm taking uh, the over. So you think a worse team is going to? Yeah, win. I, I'm taking a uh, not. A not number one seed will win the tournament. I know the answer, probabilistically. Not, I uh-huh. mean, it's less okay. than a half. It's less. Oh yeah, less than one and a half. You mean? So no, the, if you sum the probabilities for all the number one teams, you get less than a half. Okay, so you're, so you're, you're taking the over too. as well. Yeah. You're all taking right. over. All right. Even though well, there's an obviously they have answer. more probability. There you but, go. We're we're, uni- we're consensus on both picks so far. Okay, Tiger Woods finished second last week in a professional golf tournament, highest top first top five in like five years or something. And uh, look good doing it. Going into the Masters, he's all the talk. We're just a couple of weeks away now. Tiger Woods finished at the Masters. The over-under is set at 5.5. Can I? What's his kind of world ranking? It's just like 1,000. Yeah, okay. All right. So we, we, we got we, yeah, we to do some real <laughs> recency about bias priors. on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Come on, Shane. I'm going to take the over on that. I don't think, As he, in gets, high. I don't think he gets in top Damn five. It. Damn it. I know, I'm trying to be diverse. I, know, I, I know. can't do anything. Right. I have to agree. Oh, I'm with you too. I mean, it, it's, we're, I, I mean, he could, but you can't say. Well, the first odds of all, let's let's, let's, favor, let's just right? back that off. I don't think any is. Is there any player that, that you would take point. at higher than five point five? Good, good, Adi. And I would that's say uh, I don't think so. No, of course not. And that's that, 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 that great, greater was, than fifty percent chance of being in the top five. I don't think that. I mean, Tiger Woods at his prime would. Yes, was above that. Yeah, but I don't think. Is there anyone who ever has been since? Would you go with Jordan Spieth or anything like that? I don't think so. We have some hotter players than Spieth, but but I don't think anybody's fifty percent to be in the top yeah. five. Yeah. All right, here here, Audie, we're going to come back to you. We're going to finish not only with baseball with a with one of your loves since you went and saw the Mets play. Mm-hmm. You saw the Mets. Mets play. are yeah. not my love. No, <laughs> well, you know, you watch them in spring training. Yeah. Um, number love. of career games, major league career baseball games played by Tim Tebow. <laughs> Over under set at point five. In other does words, he does, he ever, does he ever get a cup of coffee in the majors? Oh, God. I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to say yes, man. Really? September call-ups and all that jazz. Just, I mean, come on. Get some, get some fans get in the stadium. Get some fans in the seats. And that yeah. is the argument. It is a yeah. marketing ploy. But a well, man we, on I mean, the NFL, I have, I actually, the NBA I mean, As much as I sort of mock the entire idea of him making the being in baseball, have we observed him enough to know whether he actually – I mean, maybe he actually – He's not good. Okay. Yeah, but the All world right. we live good. in. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go over yeah. because of the world we live in. No, yeah. you're the I think he gets a bomb too. <laughs> I think he gets a bomb in his first game, <laughs> and then we never see him. And then we never see him again. Did we finally get some divergence? We, we do. All we right. Do. We were consensus on that, but we finally got some divergence on the final one with Tebow. All right, fellas. Well, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every Wednesday morning, eight to ten. Thanks from Shane, Adi, and Cade. 
We'll have Eric back next week. Thank you to Matty Dots, to Daniel Bruno, Dion Simpkins. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.